I'm an alcoholic. My name's Tommy. You know, the book says uh, our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, what we're like now. But I thought first I'd talk about that G-O-D word (laughs) because uh, I may make reference to that. And I had... I, I, I. I do some volunteer work now in treatment centers, and, and I always use G-O-D rather than God because that God sort of sticks in my throat and for many, many years stuck in my throat for a lot of reasons, and some of that will become self-evident as I tell some of my story. But um, in I was, my first IDAA meeting in 1988 in Baltimore, I was in a meeting, and I heard somebody say that God was not a concept. God was an experience. And this I could buy. And and so I use that word and I apply it to the experience that I have when I'm with you people. And I find that I can have that experience any time I want to when I express love for another human being that there's something there that at least that's what I call God today. I guess my God doesn't have ears either, but it has a whole lot of mouths and talks to me through you people. Um, There have been occasions when I've heard some little voices in my head tell me certain things, and, and maybe that's God, I don't know, but... It's certainly the G.O.D. of my understanding today is not at all anything like that um, person with the robe that they taught me when I was a kid. I, I'm going to. I have to admit that I'm I'm speaking today for the very first time with knowledge of what I think is most of the pieces of my puzzle. That for the vast majority of my life, I didn't really understand much about what was going on. And very slowly, through you people, listening to you, going to meetings, not drinking, not taking drugs, no self-prescribing, I have learned who I am. And when I say I'm an alcoholic, what that means to me is that I have this strange difference in my biochemistry that when I drink alcohol, and that includes any other mood-altering chemical, that I somehow respond in a different way than some of those people who can drink one and a half beers those ones about whom I may have an eternal resentment. <laughs> but, um, and, and it's something that I just don't, still don't understand how they do that. I mean, I've always considered wasting that half a beer a terrible sin, but that's, you know. But really, the, that's the simple part, I think, of my disease is the cellular difference that, that means that I can't successfully ingest alcohol or drugs. I think the the other part of the first step, which says life is unmanageable, that's the important part to me. That because when I was 
probably about 15 years old, alcohol made me feel normal, and you'll understand more about that in a minute. Alcohol made me feel like I was like the other people I was around, and alcohol made it possible, and I truly believed this in my head, alcohol made it possible for me to express my true emotions. It was a magical solution to some very confused little kid that was just truly confused about everything in life. And because it provided that wonderful solution, that became my God, even though I didn't acknowledge it. And all of my thinking began to change when it came to protecting the use of that drug called alcohol. I, you know, I wanted, I wanted peop- everybody to enjoy this wonderful thing. And when I was drinking, I would grab somebody who was a teetotaler, and I would try and pour it down their throats so that they could enjoy it too. I mean, I was convinced that this was the solution. But what happened as a result of that, as it slowly progressed, this, this impairment of my logical thinking, is that I became more and more self-focused, and my thinking became more and more self-focused. And I totally lost any ability I had, which was very little to begin with. I totally lost any ability I had to relate to other human beings on any kind of a meaningful level. And that is unmanageability. It doesn't have anything to do with what happened out there. It has to do with the fact that my thinking had a glitch in it that I could never tell whether I was thinking clearly or not. And, you know, I can give you the psychobabble because I am a psychiatrist and, and tell you it's all about these defense mechanisms and all that stuff. But I think it's much simpler if I just tell you that, for me, the first step of this program that says powerless and unmanageability is my life saver. And somebody mentioned about turning the lights on. And I think that's really what the first step of the program is for me, is I come into a darkened room and everybody's sitting just where they are and everything's the way it is. And when I acknowledge the first step, it's just simply turning on the lights and seeing things exactly the way they are. I need to tell you about some of the things that went on in my life before I got here. And uh, I'm going to try and do this in some kind of a way so that we don't stay till 7 o'clock. I'll have to tell you, my first AA talk, at an hour and 10 minutes into it, I was still drunk. <laughs> you know, I mean, and these poor people were so polite. <laughs> and they just sat there. And, and I was just, you know, going nuts. Uh, I, I think there's one message that I would like to, I really would like to have this message come across, and particularly to anybody sitting in this room who has any doubt about whether this program will solve your problem. Because if you listen carefully to what I have to say, I think that you will agree
that this program has the solution for every possible problem that living human beings can be confronted with. And I am absolutely deadly serious about that. I grew up in South Dakota. That's one of the 48 states up in the middle. Um, and I had a brother who was four years older. Um, and, and another thing I need to sort of qualify about is that I, if I, my intention is not to be judgmental about anybody or anything, but to simply try and describe the circumstances the way they were. Because I, I've found that it's a lot easier for me if I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner like I used to be. And before I got to this program, truly I was. But um, I, I grew up, I, I was born in South Dakota, and, and at age four, a strange thing came into my mind, and that was that I wasn't a boy, I was a girl. And I was fairly convinced of this. And I, as I look back, I see that I played with dolls and doll furniture. And I got into a lot of trouble because I went into the girls' bathroom. I mean, I thought I was supposed to go in there. This is sort of an instinctive thing. And, and, and I was very strongly attracted to the girls. And, and I would hang around them because that's who I identified with. Some of you getting nervous out there? <laughs> This is not a virus. I don't think it's catching. <laughs> it has to do with a little part of the brain that's called the area that determines our gender identity. And mine just happened to be female, you know? And, and I will tell you, it took 60 years to, for that to be okay. That to be okay. You know, I think it's probably important I mention my sponsors sitting out here, Martin B., and Martin B., I would always call him down in Pembroke, and I'd say, Martin, how are things down in Pembroke? And he would always say just exactly they were supposed to be, just exactly they were like they were supposed to be. Well, you know, after I told him about my revelation about my gender identity, he quit saying that for quite a while. And <laughs> I love you, Martin. I told him I was going to say this, but it's, you know, some of these things really can kind of catch us up uh, and... Uh, but he's been really an absolutely wonderful sponsor. He has not, you know, he, he's just been very gentle with me. And I think that's one of the other things I think we need to realize. Uh, I do actually have a friend who is a female right now, and, and, and she's uh, going through a lot of adjustments. And she's in this program, and she has a lot of good tools that she uses too. But, but we were having a discussion, and, and she said to me, she said, I am fragile and I'm frightened. Whew. Right to my heart. Right to my heart. I think of, of all the things that anybody has said in my life, those are probably as profound as anything. Because I realized that she was talking about herself, but she was also talking about me and you and everybody. That... Everybody in these rooms is fragile and frightened. And it's when we forget that we get into trouble, I believe. When we, when we embrace that quality of our fragility and our fears, then I think we, we have tools we can deal with those things. But if we pretend they aren't there, 
then we're lost. And I think going back to when I was growing up, you see, in, in, I was born in 1942, so in 1946, in the middle of South Dakota, telling your parents, you know, what I was telling them, results in a lot of reactive behaviors. And, and my mother had a great deal of difficulties herself. Um, you know, she, she had some type of psychiatric problem, and, and, and uh, it resulted in me being sort of taken to the doctor a lot, and then the medical profession kind of got in on this, and, and um, a lot of confusing behaviors. And so by the time I was age 12, I learned to not say these things. I was told you shouldn't say those things, you shouldn't feel that way, you shouldn't do that stuff, you shouldn't think those thoughts. So not only was I terribly confused about what I was, but I was also confused about anything positive. And when I found that by taking a drink at age 15, I felt normal. I felt that I could relate to other people. <laughs> it became powerful. I suppose by age 17, I qualified for this program. I mean, I, I think it was by the, purely by the grace of God that I didn't die. I mean, because I would, uh, you know, I, I was one of these. I wanted to be a man, you see. I was told I was supposed to be a man, and so I tried to be a man. And that meant I drove fast and drank hard and all that. And, and I was absolutely convinced that when I, you know, if, if I would have had a little bit of alcohol, I could have been competitive against Juan Fangio. Now, some of you remember he was a world champion Grand Prix driver. I mean, you know, I really thought I was something. You know, later on when I became a physician can prescribe drugs for myself, um, I stood in front of the mirror and, and thought I was the second coming of Jesus Christ, you see. So this, this, this ego grew rather dramatically. But, uh, of course, I was waiting for all the good things to happen, totally forgetting about the crucifixion thing, you know. I mean, just missed the point. But I was a very confused person. And... Uh, fortunately, God gave me, and whatever this God thing is, Leclerc, <laughs> whatever, I don't know either. It just works for me to have my little mantras of thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. It helps to get the other obsessions out of my head. Um, but whatever, I was given a reasonable degree of intelligence, but I had this sort of intermittent difficulty with... Uh, not only be just identity confusion, but but also then pouring alcohol into the system. And you know, back in the early '60s, the marijuana wasn't worth a damn anyway. So it was it was it was uh, the alcohol that was sort of helpful in me getting along. But the fir my first four years of college, I I uh, accumulated 27 hours of F. That's about two years worth, you know. But I'd suffered very few consequences. Um, I need to say something else about um, the family, and just to help you understand that maybe this is all genetically driven. I, I, I'm convinced it is. Uh, I had a grandfather who was my father's father that lived about 100 miles from us. But apparently, 
from something that my grandfather had done in the past, my father told my brother and I that he was dead. And so we never met him. And uh, so you can guess whatever might have been his problem, but but uh, emotionally I had, uh, you know, do not, do not, do not, do not on one side and zero reaction, nothing, blank, control, denial on the other. So you can see I was, I, I didn't have a lot of spiritual tools when I grew up. I went to college and... Uh, Eventually, I went to uh, school in Milwaukee and went to photography school and uh, got out of there. I, I kind of skimmed through, you know. They had me on suspension when they, I started a fire in the cafeteria at noontime to warm the place up. <laughs> you know, if you'd start drinking at 10 in the morning, sometimes your mind gets creative by noon. And it was cold on the shores of Milwaukee and, and Lake Michigan. And... So a few of us started a little bonfire right in the middle of the cafeteria. But, you know, sounded like a good idea. Save the, you know, save fuel and all that. Um, but I got out of there and, and uh, moved to Minneapolis and um, drank. And uh, I, I got into a lot of sexually compulsive behaviors. I, I, I would go into the bars in Minneapolis and... Uh, you know, I'd drink up enough courage. My favorite country-western song was Come Sit With Me, Honey, While I Drink You Pretty. Um, you know, and, and, but, and then I'd, of course, fall in love, you know. And, uh, and, then, and then for some reason, something would happen toward the end of the evening. I'd never get beyond their first name. And then they would disappear, and I'd end up the next day finding myself at home my apartment, going through the Minneapolis telephone directory looking for the first name, you know, I mean, it's because uh, I was in love. I mean, you know, I had to find her. <laughs> so eventually I came down to uh, uh, North Carolina to work as a photographer for Alderman Studios, which was a big furniture studio. They did all these room scenes back in the 60s, you know, like all these ads. You see, that was what they did. And... Uh, I met my uh, wife. Now, I need to tell you that one of the other things that I found interesting was to date married women because it was very exciting. You know, it's a risk-taking type of interaction, and you could go threaten the husband and threaten the husband's parents and be a big shot, you know. Drinking gave me lots of courage. <laughs> I, somehow I had a lot of discussions with attorneys, too. I don't know what that was about I didn't I was so I, you know my my psychobabble defenses had generated this sort of isolated rigid narcissistic bubble but my narcissistic bubble was made of Lexan I tell you it was hard to pop that thing you know it was it was I was sturdy I was out there and I was I was you know there and uh, rolled along for a while. But uh, I came to North Carolina and I met uh, a very, very nice German lady. And naturally, you know, if you drink, you think that the Germans, they drink beer. And that was true. She, she was very good and, and helped me to drink. Um, and then, uh, and, and I, I had affairs during my marriage. 
And it's, you know, every now and then we have little brief moments of insight. And uh, these brief moments of insiders when, when we think, I'm doing this because I'm a man. And that was very clear. Every single affair I had was, I'm, this proves that I'm a man. So I was struggling so hard to just keep this identity of who I really was repressed. Although every now and then I have to admit there'd be times that would come up for maybe hours when it was without any question I knew I was a female. That was just, I, I just knew that, and, and it was not an issue, of, but it would quickly get repressed or it would get drowned out, <laughs> as the case might have been. Because it's a very uncomfortable thing, you know, if you don't have any solution to that problem, you go to the solution you have, and that's you drink. And it goes away. And you don't have to bother with it. And that was the way I wanted everything to happen in my life. Any problems, I just wanted them to go away. I didn't want to bother with them. I certainly didn't want to find a solution to them, because I had no idea there were solutions to my problems. And I will tell you that when you have this kind of strange thinking going on in your head, you don't think there are any solutions to that. I mean, this is, this is rather overwhelming. But I did have that alcohol, and that would always provide a solution. Well, I got married and in, uh, in 1968, and uh, my wife had a, a uh, son who was about six years old at that time, and I adopted him, and he's very nice. matter of fact, when I leave here, I'm going up to see him in Dallas and the two grandchildren, and it's really neat. And, uh, and there are miracles, too. I'll tell you about that in a second. But... Um, About 1970, I had, and I think this is some kind of a spiritual experience, that I felt that I needed to go back to school and go to medical school. Now, if this isn't total insanity, you know, with 27 hours of F on my first experience in college, thinking I'm somehow going to go back to school and get into medical school, you know, this is really great. However, Fs don't transfer. So, if there are any officials of Phi Beta Kappa out there, I just want you to know that I'm probably your only member who has 27 hours of F. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I went back, and of course, I was very compulsive in school, and I ended up, I mean, I was taking like 22 hours, and I did a four-year chemistry degree in two years. And I took, 20, I was taking PCHEM and Anybody who knows what PCHEM is, you know, and I was taking PCHEM and Quant and Qual all at the same time or something. I mean, it was, it was uh, but you see, we are determined people. We have willpower beyond any imagination sometimes. And, and I just ground that stuff up. I mean, I just was obsessed with succeeding at that. And I did. I think I ended up with like a 3.6 or 7 average. And, and, uh, and, and then I got in... I, had a, took me a year to get into medical school because they didn't have all the grades in when they made the decision. I got in into Chapel Hill. That's, uh, you know, Tar Heels and so on. And uh, in medical school, I was, I was going to school in the middle of the week and living in High Point. That's about 60 miles away. And, and uh, so I kind of started drifting into old patterns. The... Well, I guess I didn't. I was constantly 
seeking out ways to affirm that I was a male. And, and that continuously got me into difficulty. And, and I, you know, I, 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 I try to make amends. And I think that my ex-wife probably thinks that I'm doing a pretty good job of that. I mean, I'm kind to her, and we have an excellent relationship now that we're divorced for 20 years or whatever. I mean, it's... But um, I went to medical school, and and, uh, and that was kind of a struggle sometimes because there was a part of me that was very sensitized to things. And and in medical school, there's sometimes kind of a mecha- uh, mechanical way of approaching things, is you know, lab tests and all this. And and so I, I was in a conflict there. And, of course, my mind, you know, still remember, it's, it's still got two or three people running around in there. You know, I had a real committee meeting at 4 in the morning. But uh, I did get out of medical school and, and successfully. I didn't have any serious problems there. And um, there were a few weekends when I was supposed to be on call that I was actually in high point drinking, and, and I told them I was real sorry for that, and they believed it and let me through, you know. Um, and then I went to... Uh, Bowman Gray and did a residency in psychiatry. Now, I was real popular there because I, uh, you know, when you're you're very confused and you don't know how to relate to people, you learn how to manipulate. And being of regional intelligence, I could manipulate very, 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 very well. And so I could manipulate drug companies into throwing beer parties, you know, and the motels for the residents and all this stuff. And and uh, I could manipulate my way through the system, and and, uh, and I, I was intelligent enough to pretty much find a solution to problems that occurred as a resident, and at least I was smart enough to know when I didn't know, which is probably one of the great things. And know that, but and uh, I managed to get through my residency, and then I opened up a practice of psychiatry in High Point, and. Uh, that was about 1982. And uh, one of the difficulties I was having while well, I was chief resident in psychiatry was that I had found another female. And this one was a borderline, which was my favorite particular psychiatric diagnosis. I, God, I think that's a common problem for alcoholics. You know, we just seem to want to have the hell beat out of us. You know, and they're the best ones to do it, too. Um, anyway, and she was an addict, and, and so we got along very well. And so I left my wife, and, and, and uh, two years of hell, two years of hell. I was opening up a psychiatric practice, and I was the only psychiatrist in High Point. I was very successful. Bang, right? Within three months, I was completely filled up, and I developed a, a process to where we could admit people to the regular hospital with psychiatric patients and treat them there, and, and, uh, and, and things went very well for me uh, in terms of my business. But I will tell you that I was in pure hell for two years. Um, it, it, just this this squirrel cage existence of running and running and running and running. Of course, by now, you see, I had all these samples. Restoril. I had a lot of psychological insight, however. 
walking out of my office with a food lion sack, you know, large grocery sack filled with about two to three hundred restoreal pills, I said to myself, why aren't the rest of these doctors taking their pills home? <laughs> that was the end of the insight. <laughs> I never answered the question. Well, I'll tell you something, that when you mix restoreal and you mix alcohol, and I had a solution for the hangover, of course. Um, it was uh, when I was drunk, and I tried to get in early, you know, by 2, 12, 30, 1 o'clock. I was kind of early to bed drunk. But uh, Well, you take 60 milligrams of restoreal, you take a gram of vitamin C, a gram of acetaminophen, and then you go to bed. And then the next morning you get up, you don't have a hangover. At least I didn't. Um, the problem is that it's tough to get awake, too. And so I would take coffee, and I would take two scoops of Folgers crystals and then pour in regular coffee on top of it. I'd drink five of those in about, oh, by about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. So I had 15 cups of coffee in me by 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. So for a period of maybe two to three hours, I was just about right. <laughs> <laughs> A good friend of mine, Donnie H., is sitting down here, and that's his line is just about right. But, you know, just about right. But by golly sakes, you know, that restoreal's half-life was not right because it was starting to wear off at about 3 or 4 o'clock, and I would just start to vibrate. And I swear to God, I dictated a letter to Sandoz about working on the pharmacokinetics of their drug because I was getting nervous in the afternoon. <laughs> I didn't send it, I didn't send it, but, but uh, <laughs> I would have gotten to this program a few years earlier, I think. But it was, you know, that's how crazy I was. I, I was going to be in control of everything. And, I, and it, it, I, I'll just tell you one little story about I, uh, I had a... Eventually I got sober... Um, I started going to AA in about 85, and I got sober in November 2nd, 87. I liked everything that this program had to offer except two things. <laughs> One being the God part, and the other being the not drinking part. You know. <laughs> it was a great program. Hell, I tried Al-Anon. Didn't help. But, uh, and then I was up in Philadelphia at Freedom 87, and two people 12-stepped me up there, you know, and I thought, Jesus, what ungrateful people these are. But anyway, um, and I got into uh, a treatment center, not into a treatment center. I got sober by going to AA and, and finally stopped taking the pills. And I think within 30 days I was starting to sleep, you know. It's a funny thing. You, can, you sort of lie down and, and everything's vibrating. It's a little different than having the bed going like this, you know, when you're drunk. It just sort of vibrates like you got a vibrator on you. But then I'd get up and... And, uh, but I did uh, a, a couple years into sobriety. By then, after a year of sobriety, the hospital came to me and said, you have changed. And I said, uh, well, gosh, you know, and they told me some things that I did. And I said, why didn't somebody say something about it? And they said I, they were afraid to. So that was kind of drunk I was. I, you didn't really want to say anything to me. Um, but I treated some patients in our treatment center. They asked me to open up a treatment center, and we got all that together and, and uh, opened up a treatment center. And it went very well. We were, I think we had a very good treatment center for 10 years, and, and we had good staff and good, it was, it was a good treatment center. It was a Parkside unit. But, 
But what's uh, interesting is that I treated a couple patients there, and uh, then they came back and followed up in my office, and my office manager gave me these charts where I'd treated these people about five or six years earlier in the office for three months and had absolutely no recollection of it. <laughs> you know, uh, so I guess maybe I was having more blackouts than I realized. Well, I need to... I got about 15 minutes left, and, and I want to tell you about gratitude. Um, my favorite page in As Bill Sees It is page 37, and I, I just don't have one with me, but it's it's about gratitude. And it basically it says something like don't count all your material goods <laughs> or don't even count your spiritual progress, but simply be grateful. And when we are grateful, then our hearts are filled with outgoing love, which is the finest human emotion that we can know. And that's what Bill says, and, and, and I, that's just my favorite piece there. But... I, everything was going well where I, I, I had an incredibly busy psychiatric practice and I had people working for me and and, uh, and in about three years ago <coughs> about th just a slightly over three years ago things had gotten in the hospital Every, you know managed care was be eating us up and so on and but we still, for several years, I had a practice that admitted 5.5 .5 patients per day, seven days a week. I had 43 beds under my control. <laughs> now, do you think maybe I was workaholic? Uh, <laughs> that's a disease that will kill you too, I believe. And I think that was what it was because I was, see, I had, I had kind of switched uh, when I, once I got sober, I just switched, really, into workaholism. And it sounds good because geez, I was doing all these wonderful things, you know, and, and, and uh, it was very financially good, too. But, of course, I didn't have... And, but I was just as controlling about everything because, in any case, finally it got to the point where we couldn't keep staff because we were so busy and they could go... 10 miles away to Greensboro and be on call one night out of seven where they were one night out of two or one night out of three in High Point. So we kept losing staff and we tried to get locum tenants in. And, and it came down to a point where um, the, the high, I had worked two five-day weekends with no PAs on or anything, doing all these 5.5 admissions per day and seeing 35 patients around and on them. And, and I went to the hospital and I asked for some help. Now, I was on the medical executive committee, the committee that makes all the decisions, and I, and I knew what happened to physicians when they acted in negative ways and bad ways, you know, threw their instruments across the in OR and so on and, and yelled at patients on the phone and beat up on staff and so on. I knew what happened to all those things. They got a little hand-slapping and... and were told that they need to straighten up and go get the evaluation and nothing else. But when I went and asked for help and said that after five days on call and without sleep that I was not 
I, I really questioned my own ability to function, they suspended my privileges. And it was a very strange thing. I, I spent $40,000 on advisors finding out what happened. And they said, well, you got too powerful, and they didn't want you there anymore, and this was their way of doing it. And, and, and it came down, the lawyers said, you'll have to sue them, but you're only going to get a very little because this is an employer that employs everybody. And, and, you know, this is a point when in our book it says we stood at the turning point. And I think what it means when it says we stood at the turning point is that we make a decision whether we want to apply spiritual principles to an issue or whether we want to stay in the time and space material world known as the power, prestige, and possessions world, or do we want to get into a world based on faith? And so I stood at the turning point, and I made a decision that I was not going to sue the hospital, that I felt they, they had been good to me. Uh, they certainly, this was something that I didn't think anybody understood what was going on, and and instead I, I simply didn't go back to the hospital and, and didn't, and I still haven't been back, actually. Um, but I started getting into an outpatient practice, and and I, I, I was totally destroyed by having my privileges suspended. A, a program that I'd spent virtually, you know, all my time and effort building, and all of a sudden I'm not God anymore. And I think in sobriety, that's where you know I deluded myself into thinking I was somebody important. And, you know, I had the faith, though, that things were going to work out. I didn't know how, and I didn't understand why, and I think those are very important things that in sobriety we, we hold dearly to, is that we don't, know have, we don't have to know how it's going to work out, and we don't have to know why it's going to work out or why something's happened. I think why is just a matter of us being angry and wanting to know. But I had this level of faith that it was going to work out. And after about a year and a half of outpatient work, where actually all I did was to cover the overhead of the office, I began to get very, very depressed. And, and I became so concerned about my own suicidal thoughts that uh, now I'd been seeing a psychiatrist, sort of, but, you know, <laughs> if you're a psychiatrist, you know that, that one psychiatrist and another psychiatrist is kind of like a... Um, contest of wits, <laughs> you know, if you can out, anyway, um, I became quite concerned my suicidal thoughts were becoming, um, well, I was smart enough to know this was not good, and so I began, I sought out a therapist who was a female Episcopal priest who dealt with all the sexual issues uh, in the Diocese of North Carolina who is straight but is very pro-LGBT. LGBT, for those who don't know, is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. And this wonderful person, I, I, within about two or three times of meeting with her, and I swear I, I used the number six questions, and I don't know what six questions he asked me, but... I was given the gift of all of this stuff from my past childhood coming back connected with the emotion.
I knew it all happened, but I'd never been able to connect any emotion to it. I'd never had any feelings about it. And then there was an event in high school with a physics professor, and that came back, and a dream, and it, and it just, it, it was a sexual abuse issue. It's not important what it was, but it came back in a dream, and I woke up in a panic trying to, you know, fight somebody off, basically. And I processed this, and the strength of this program allowed me to give up the defenses that I had used all my life to hold that down, all that energy to hold that down. But what I didn't realize is when I gave up all those defenses, a little voice said inside, I'm here and I'm ready to come out. And it was my female self. And we call this in the transsexual community activation energy. I mean, I've heard that used. And, and, and it isn't about coming out. It's about emerging. <laughs> you, you're, it's like being thrown out the door and you don't have any clothes and the door locks behind you and you're there. And there's no going back. But, coming, but along with that, recognizing that my gender identity is female was an amazing thing. When I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, my world went from black and white to at least black and white and shades of gray. And I began to have, I thought it was fantastic to get sober and have some emotions, because I'd never had any emotions except rage, lust, and off. When, when I was able to accept my gender identity, it was like somebody gave me one of these uh, coloring things that Ted Turner did to all the black and white movies, you know, and put some colors in there. And this program helped me to not get carried away and go out and prescribe my own medicines to deal with that issue. Instead, I very methodically sought out, so slowly too, much, much slower than I would have wanted to, but for some reason, slowly sought out a very competent endocrinologist that deals with these issues. I went down to Florida and saw Marilyn Volker, and I saw Fred Berlin up at Johns Hopkins, and I saw Sally Schumacher up in Detroit, a very dear friend of mine who's years ago was a nationally known sexologist. And, well, Marilyn, you know, some of you know Marilyn Volker, I think. Marilyn is such a dear, dear, dear person. And at the end of three hours, she says to me, Go, girl. <laughs> Go, girl. And, but I want to tell you about this colorized black and white movie. I went to the endocrinologist, and uh, she did a lot of tests, including a testosterone level. My testosterone was 1,000, which is in normal male is like three to 800. And uh, we started on the hormones, which is basically testosterone-blocking agents plus some uh, estradiol. And within two weeks, my Turner colorized black and white movies turned into the IMAX theater. And I got a box of 64 color crayons. And for me, looking back, and I do not regret the past, and I certainly don't wish to shut the door on it. But for me, looking back, 
this was my day of birth when I began to experience this incredible palette of emotions. Sad, happy, glad, things that I have never, ever experienced in my life. And, and I cry all the time. You know, I'm quite amazed that I haven't just... I was afraid I was going to get up here and just for 45 minutes just sob all over the place. But I didn't bring a, a Kleenex or anything. So I guess God said, we'll wait till you get to your room. <laughs> um, but it's... It, it's impossible for me to really share with you the level of gratitude that I have to you people for being here. And I, particularly at IDAA, which is a place where I could go and, and, and go to meetings and, and get such tremendous support. Uh, and, and I have, you know, I, I, my prayers are some kind of strange at night. I, I sometimes, one of my prayers is... Uh, Dear God, there's no way I can ever be grateful enough. I was mentioning to some folks the other day that, you know, today I feel better than any drug or alcohol ever made me. Except maybe the morphine. <laughs> God, is that a drug? <laughs> I got hit on a bicycle about four years ago and they gave me morphine and I fell in love with the nurse. Short story. It's, um, anyway, but I, you know, it, it's a simple thing, this program. I, and I, one of my other prayers is, dear God, is it, is it really this simple? Just love you, love other people, and do the next best right thing? I jumped in bed and went to sleep. That was the end of it, you know. If you think, and, and I, and I'm in but three weeks, I transitioned to a female, living full time as a female. And in about six, eight months, I go to Montreal and and uh, get my tumors removed. <laughs> you know, it says on page 132 of our book, we absolutely insist on enjoying life, and by God, I'm going to enjoy this as much as I possibly can. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to tell all the guy jokes I can. I want to, you know, I feel I just have to tell, I have to tell the ladies a joke. You guys can just live with this one, okay? This is a, a male to female transsexual post-operatively, and, and they're asking her what the most painful part of it was. And they said, was it the breast implant? She says, no, it wasn't the breast implant. Well, was it the penectomy and vaginoplasty? No, that wasn't it. Well, what was it? She said, it's when they drilled the burr hole in my head and injected three liters of compassion. <laughs> Go, girl. <laughs> you know, I... Terry, where are you? Oh, there you are. You know, I, I'm sorry that you had to miss Garrett O'Connor because I know Garrett and he's a wonderful speaker. But, you know, I am so very grateful for this chance to talk to you and, and and again if you think that you have a problem this program won't help you solve you better you better buy the CD and listen to it a few times because the solution is in these 12 steps and it's just simply a matter of not drinking and drugging going to meetings getting a sponsor working the steps praying daily reading the big book and doing service work thank you very very much